I understand why people suffer, you know, why people suffer when it comes to uh, this moment in their lives when, when they are losing someone is because we haven't been socialized to, to think about, to plan, to dream up what it would be like to transition. Welcome to the B-Side Project, an exploration of where the end of life and Judaism intersect. My name is Sarit, and I'm out to uncover what wisdom and rituals Judaism provides for the dying, for the people caring for the dying, and for what comes next. My name is Ana Lucia Lopez Reboredo, and I am a Peruvian Chilean American woman currently residing on the West Coast of California. I come into this space uh, thinking about death and dying and community as someone who grew up really closely to conversations and, and concepts around uh, impermanence, human impermanence in our physical embodiment, and also also growing up with a deeply spiritual practice around what life means beyond incarnation. And as someone who grew up in a multicultural home, it's been interesting to think about, you know, what what communities or what cultures inform the rituals that I want to inform when it comes to death and dying and my role in the process. Ana Lucia is also the founder and executive director of Jutina Eco, an organization on a mission to celebrate, explore, and raise awareness of the diverse Latin Jewish community and experience. She's a citizen of the world and a good friend. I asked Analicia if I could interview her for this podcast for many reasons. Her experience losing a loved one at an early age, her connection to her Jewish identity, the different cultures she is born from and embraces, and also because of all that I have yet to learn from her. Even though we've known each other for five years, there is more to her story that I wanted to hear, and I feel incredibly lucky that she said yes to the invitation. Ana Lucia grew up in Peru to parents of different faith backgrounds. When I asked about her connection to death and dying, I didn't expect her story to start quite as far back as it did. So I was introduced to the concept of death and dying at a very early age. I think I was likely four or five, like some of my earliest memories actually revolve uh, or involve conversations with my with my parents around death. And I think it began with learning um, that you know our our current state of life isn't you know forever. I think I had a friend whose grandparent passed away. I didn't really understand, and I knew that I had had I had had grandparents that had passed away, but they had been gone since I had been born. And so it wasn't until someone, a peer of mine, lost someone that I realized, oh, I could lose someone. I remember coming home and speaking to my parents about it. And it must have been in preschool because I was so young. It was received so gently. And I would have to say my father was certainly the one who was the, the main architect with it when it came to conversations around death and dying and impermanence and spirituality and incarnation. I remember uh, being very scared at the idea that we might not be in each other's lives forever, that I might not be able to hug him or that he might be gone. And I remember my father really just gently listening to my fears and assuring me that whether he was able to hug me or not 
we were going to be together, that our ability to experience love, which is like the, the embodiment of human spirit or how human spirit is experienced and remembered uh, would be something that would never be lost regardless of our ability to be able to hold each other's hands or to hug. I was really young. So to kind of understand as a five-year-old is complicated. It didn't really make sense. And I remember uh, as I tried to processing this, I would process it with peers at school And very quickly, I was reprimanded for talking about such morbid things in the classroom. And I remember um, my parents getting a call about this and and my dad saying thank you very much to the teacher, um, but also saying that like in our household, like conversations around death and and dying were were normalized and that it was important at an early age to not build a fear-based approach to thinking about this but to rather think about it as a continuum, a spiritual continuum, and something that is in the most natural part of life. And I have to say, uh, part of my calmness around, you know, speaking about this or thinking about my own impermanence or thinking about my um, people close to me passing, I think the my ability to uh, to think about it without get psyching myself out comes from having those conversations at a very early age. As a new parent myself, I think about this all the time. How will I talk about death and dying to my daughter in an open and healthy way? I recently heard someone share their first encounter with death was when their grandparent died and her parents told her that grandma had gone to sleep. This led to years of sleep problems for this person who feared that they might die every time they went to sleep. I love the story of her father telling Analysia's teacher, thanks for the heads up, but we're good. And the reminder of how and when we start talking about death to children matters. Analysia's approach to ritual is one that grows and shifts as she grows and shifts. She shared with me more about where that came from in her family. So I come from a multicultural family. And my mother was Jewish, and but grew up secular, very secular. And I think that partially had to do with the fact that her parents were also a multi-faith couple, one of like the first in that time uh, in her faith family. And my dad uh, grew up Catholic and his faith and his spirituality remain central to his life today. And so when I was growing up, uh, I actually did not have, my mother didn't know enough about Jewish tradition and ritual to kind of paint a picture around like, this is what we do when we pass. But my father, he was much more committed to his spiritual practice and thinking about death and dying. And I have to say, I, it's not necessarily mirroring Catholic practice by any means. I think it very much mirrors like his own, what was missing in his own, in his faith as, some, as someone who was so closely connected to, who remains connected to his faith. There was elements that he didn't agree with uh, and elements that, some of the elements that he took actually were rooted in Jewish practice. So for example, the idea of how we prepare the body and how we, you know, we're very simple beings and there is no need for 
like adoration or like, you know, putting on a lot of things that typically and and typically in his faith, that would be something that people do. They prepare the body for like an open casket and for viewing. Um, But that was something that he felt was performative almost and kind of missed the point of transition. And it tried to hold on to something like one last way in which we can remember something. And for him, like we were past that, like that's not we remember people, you know, in uh, in their autonomy and in their best, you know, version of themselves. And so, um, what was really important in terms of like our practices or how we thought about death and dying was more in a very simple, like how we simply dress the body in like a white robe and and how we gently prepare for you know this transition and a burial was something that was like really important. But it's interesting because his own thinking around it has changed a lot. And I think that just comes with his more closely experience, like more experiences that he's had with death and how he's wanting to kind of continue to move forward in his own evolution around like thinking about what we can do in terms of ritual and, you know, we're ever evolving. It's interesting because our traditions around death and dying are ones that my family really crafted and curated to fit our, I think our, our ethics and our values I wanted to hear more about how their community in Peru approached the end of life. And Ana Lucia shared something that I think is common in many cultures, denial, often cloaked in positivity. It's where we try to only focus on positive things, which stems from so much, including love, fear, discomfort. We end up shutting down the possibility of important and meaningful conversations when they most need to happen. I'll let Ana Lucia share more. I've seen it happen many times. And this is a a generalization based on my experiences where someone will say, oh, you know, I think think I'm dying or I only have a couple more months left where people around them will say, don't say that. That's bad luck. You know, you're going to make it. And I think that speaks to a a bigger, let's say problem, but a sociological, like a social conditioning that we have around thinking that death is the worst thing that can happen. And that if we think that way, then we're, you know, throwing in the towel or that we're negative or that we're not being positive rather than seeing, you know, an assertion like that as being a really aware and conscious assertion that may allow for other conversations that then, you know, we wish would have happened. Like, you know, like what would I have wanted this to look like or who would I have wanted there? What would I have wanted to be said or where would I have wanted to be interred? would I have wanted to be interred? Like there's a lot of things that sometimes don't come up because we don't allow people who are dying to think about it and to dream about it and to hold space for that. Yes. How might we keep the door open for these conversations? Maybe it isn't about the conversation itself, but rather about creating space for its possibility. My next question for Ana Lucia was about her mother. Now, I need to share something that I felt terrible about when I realized it had happened, and I'm now trying to reflect on it as a learning moment. I never asked Ana Lucia her mom's name. It wasn't until the following day when it suddenly dawned on me that I only knew her as Ana Lucia's mom. So I asked, and Ana Lucia wrote, her name is Gloria. And she was glorious. 
I think my mom's passing, she passed away. Uh, it'll be nine years ago at the end of the year. It's almost like I had been preparing for it my whole life. It wasn't like the surprise. I was like, oh yeah, like I knew this was going to happen. It was probable that it would happen when I wasn't ready for it. Right. And you know, my mom, her death, uh, it, everything happened quickly. She wasn't feeling well and she was diagnosed with a type of head neck cancer uh, that was very rare. And because it was rare, was caught really late despite her advocating for herself and saying something's not right. Like something I'm, I'm in pain. Uh, and she was probably saying that for about a year. And I remember, and I remember her going to different appointments and people not really knowing what it could be. And so when we found out when it was appropriately diagnosed, um, she was at a stage four cancer about a month after her diagnosis, she had surgery to remove the cancer and endured radiation, chemotherapy, but 10 months after her diagnosis, she passed away. So it was relatively quick. I would say I didn't, I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. You know, after when my mom got her diagnosis, I remember exactly what I was doing. And I remember thinking, okay, this is just one, one of those things. We're going to get through it. A lot of people get cancer. Death wasn't necessarily what I was focusing on. I was living in Portland, Oregon at the time. And it wasn't until I came home for Thanksgiving of 2012. I hadn't seen my mom at that point for about two months which had been the longest I had been without seeing her while she had been sick. And I remember walking into her room and no, knowing right away and seeing her that she was going to die from this. In that moment, that was the first moment that I knew, like this, this isn't something that she's going to survive. And it took me a moment to say that out, like to really think that because I even thought I'm being negative or I'm being, I'm not, you know, I'm giving bad energy into the space and that's not the attitude I should have. But it was important for me to recognize that because I needed to start working through a process that basically was about a month before she passed away when I had that realization. The month that, that followed, you know, that understanding was a very difficult month that involved her being in the hospital for three fourths of the time. It also um, was a time in which my siblings and I had moments of desperation, like, let's try this other alternative form of therapy and this uh, chemotherapy that's new. And I think my mom was also someone who would have been prepared to die or like was prepared, but also lived her life for her kids. So there was this desire for her to keep going as long as, you know, we wanted it. And my dad, when we were in the, in the room talking to the doctor around, like, should we uh, try this other alternative medicine? And if we try it and it works, she might live another eight weeks, you know, so we're not even talking like years, we're talking like little bits of time. And, and we're like, we should try it, we should do this. And my dad is like, no, no more. Like, this is not okay. Like your mom, this isn't your mom in her most free, fulfilled life. This isn't your mom. This is us being egocentric to keep her here. We're, we're putting her in pain and she loves us. And that's what she's going to do these things because we are asking her to do it. He was right. hundred percent. I think all of us were just kind of in shock and we were just seeing this, you know, even all the preparation we had in our life, all the conversations when you're in that moment, like you're still like reaching for uh, what we call like hail Mary's, you know, where we're just kind of like these last minute resort things. I'm jumping in here to underscore something Ana Lucia said that even all the preparations we had in our life, even all the conversations, when you're in that moment. 
Even then, they were reaching for a Hail Mary, for anything that would keep Gloria with them a little bit longer. And I'm pausing here on this because it challenges my own assumptions about how we can begin to get better when it comes to dying. And the truth is, we won't know till we're there and in that moment. I don't have a neat answer to this, but rather a guess that if we begin to sit with these difficult thoughts, if we begin to look ahead, we might be able to build on our resilience and capacity to confront the unknowable. Now back to listening. I remember uh, my sister and I, there was a moment where we, we just like cracked because none of us were sleeping. You know, we were spent like three weeks where we were all around the clock, like monitoring, making sure my mom was okay, having last conversations with her and trying to keep a, you know, building new memories. That's what we wanted. And then finally, my sister and I looked at each other and we said, we want mom to die. And saying that felt so good because we knew that we were saying that in the most loving way, because we needed to tell her we're ready for you. We like, we want you to rest. Like we really need you to go. And us saying that comes from absolutely like the bottom of our hearts with so much love. It was in that conversation that we knew that my mom heard us, even though she was at that moment already kind of out that she uh, allowed herself to, to, to leave her body. It was, you know, I was holding her hand when she took her last breath. Uh, Like I called it, my brother, he's a medical professional. So he called like the minute, you know, that you have to call when someone's passed, like you give the time. Um, We did a Kaddish, like when my mom passed away. Uh, My dad also said uh, our father, which uh, is a very common prayer and Catholic faith, but it's also, it's rooted in, it's, it's actually very, it's a very beautiful prayer. And it was a beautiful way to just kind of be in that moment, like celebrating that extraction of her spirit from her body. And we're so attached to things like my mom's, I still remember my mom's, like her scent, her like sweet scent. I remember her voice. I remember the softness of her skin. And, you know, I, I have so many, when I think of her, at this moment in time now, nine months since she's passed, nine years since she's passed, I don't really think about her in the last year in which she really kind of changed physically. I think about her in like the previous memory. Yeah, it's it's wild uh, to think about how when she passed, the relief really that I think we felt like when it happened, like the, the morning after, I remember waking up and feeling like, oh my God, I can finally breathe again because I know that my mom is not in pain. And I know that we now, we were, we were almost like pushing for the, you know, the inevitable, we were trying to prevent it, but now here we are. So how do we reconstruct our lives with the spirit of our mom in it without the requirement of her physicalness in it? Our mom, my mom is with me everywhere, every day. I, 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 I talk to her, like I, I verbally talk to her and I recognize like, that I'm not, I'm still trying to, in many ways, I could communicate with her in ways that felt like the way in which I've communicated with her, but I don't need her to respond back in order for us to be in partnership and community and and to feel her around me. Uh, And that was only, only was I able to experience that by experiencing death. Hearing is commonly believed to be the last functioning sense, which means that even if a person isn't responsive towards the end, it is very possible that they can still hear. Whether that's music, poetry, or a loved one ready to say goodbye. 
Analysia said they celebrated the extraction of Gloria's spirit from her body, which was so incredibly powerful to hear. Knowing how she and her family watched the woman they loved transition towards death in the last year, I can only imagine the strength and grace it might take to draw on a word or feeling like celebration. I'll let Analysia share the intentional and beautiful ways she and her family honored Gloria. We didn't do a Jewish burial, like we cremated her, uh, but it was really important for her that we celebrate her transition on her birthday. So my mom passed away at the end of December and her birthday was the 18th of January. And so on that day, we gathered as friends, family, as community and celebrated my mother and had her birthday and found ways in which to gather the way she would have wanted us to gather had it been her birthday and to like celebrate her life the same way she would have celebrated her own, which was in a very joyful manner. I wanted to be in the most natural state possibility, you know, a heightened awareness that something had changed. Morning stage that was somehow painted either like in movies or in the most like dramatic form of being, you know, like this is how we should mourn someone or transition out. That was something that I felt mattered less to me, like this need to be incessantly sad or incessantly like unconsolable. Um, but I do love the ability, the opportunities to be with people. So I did welcome those people who wanted to come during Shiva, but with a caveat that we, that I couldn't be expected to be, you know, a mess and that I couldn't, you know, be expected to carry a conversation and be interested in someone else's like well-being because I needed, I need whatever focus needed to be centered on like my pain and my suffering. So um, I took what I liked and I kind of rearranged what I felt was a bit over the top. Being that Ana Lucia was in her 20s when Gloria died, and many of her friends had yet to confront death the same way, I was curious how they were able to be there for her when she returned to Portland. People around me didn't know how to react when all of this was happening. And I think, again, that goes with just the little conversation, the little time that our communities, you know, across, like outside of, within Judaism and outside of Judaism, uh, cross-culturally, uh, and thinking about, you know, end of life and, and dying. And, and I think that my reaction to things was also very strange for people. Like, I think people were expecting me to not be able to get out of bed or not be able to smile and, I would be lying if I said that I didn't have moments of like, you know, just deep sadness, because of course I did. Like we're transitioning from one realm of living to a different one, from one way of being in relationship with someone to being in a different type of relationship. Um, And I'm speaking about that, like with my mom, you know, I was used to being able to hug her and now I was needing to be, to seek her comfort in a different way. And I I think that the people that are around me, um, I, I feel lucky that, I had my, my, my family, we were a little much more on the same page around how we show up for each other and how we continue to keep my mom's memory a part of our lives. Um, but it felt like a lot of work for me to also kind of explain it to other people, because I felt like society wanted me to feel a certain way. And it's not my responsibility to make you feel better about the way I'm feeling about my mother's death. You know, and so I think that that was also kind of like a moment of like, this is very strange. Like, I think it's much easier to 
act the way you want me to act, that'll allow us to fall into place a little bit more than to really be, to kind of uh, experience or process this the way that I want to process it. And so that was interesting, certainly. Playing the role of a mourner isn't something I had thought about before. And now I'm thinking about what it means for us, the people who are in community with someone grieving the death of a loved one. What are the questions we ask? What are our expectations of what grief looks like? And how might we be unintentionally placing those expectations onto someone else? Our approach to grief and our expectations for someone else's reality is a universal tension that reaches across borders. And then there's the particular Jewish piece. There are certain Jewish expectations, including how the body is cared for after death, that the body is typically buried in a plain pine box, and how the loved ones of the deceased ritually mourn for different lengths of time. We've heard some of the ways that Ana Lucia approached other expectations surrounding her mother's death, and now I'll let her share how she navigated these specifically Jewish moments. So for example, my mom was cremated and it was her wish to be cremated. That was something that I felt like, well, no, like we can't cremate you. Like we have to do this because this is what we do as Jews. And like, what is that going to say? And, uh, and I was still worried about these like social norms and like what people were going to say, which I thought was like, here I have the person who's, who's passing and is asking me that this is what they want. And I'm like more concerned about something else. And and so I really kind of needed to check in on that, um, like who I was being more, who I was listening to more and who I was, whose interest I had more in mind or whose opinion I had more in mind. Um, So that was something that I had to work through explicitly. Also through my own, you know, like, what does this mean in my space? You know, like, uh, like outside of my mom's passing, because people would always ask, so, oh, like, where was she buried? Or what are you doing? Um, Do you need something for Shiva? Or do you need something, you know, do you know how to conduct like what you need to do for like Shloshim? And um, I actually didn't have like a true understanding of a lot of those things. And so I had to do a lot of my own self-discovery. And that led to years of going down a you know a personal passion project around giving more people more uh, young Jewish adults the opportunity to think about Jewish ritual through Moisha House, I led two different retreats that really like did a deep dive on thinking about one in permanence and thinking about ritual. But that all came from personally looking into all of these things and and also doing so. Um, with the permission, with like allowing myself to maybe disagree with some of those things, because I think at that moment in time, there was like a certain expectation of of me and and moving forward with certain rituals. And I think at the time I was observing a certain amount of, uh, I was like Shomer Shabbat and I was like living in a certain way. And I felt like I needed to keep things a certain way in order to be the best Jewish version of myself or the best Jewish community member. And I was forgetting like my own autonomy and my own critical thinking and my own like desires. And so um, it was really in like ye- probably three, four years in, you know, since the passing of my mom that I really took some time to dive deep into what all of this meant for me. And that ultimately, you know, like ritual is, ma- is meant to make sense for those that are living. You know, it's not really meant to make sense for those that have passed. And so if something is not making sense for me, like, that's okay too. You know, I'm, I'm a co-creator of ritual. Like I'm not just a receiver. I'm not just a consumer of Judaism. Like I also am a contributor. I'm continuously creating and I'm contributing, creating, co-creating with others. 
often it means that I'm implementing ritual that's you know, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years old. And sometimes it means that I'm also amending and adding certain things that feel right to me. Oh my goodness. I deeply feel that. That's why I'm here too, with honor to our thousands year old tradition. And also, sometimes I feel like there are wide holes in our traditions, which is why in part the B-Side project has come into existence. And I'm totally drawing on Ana Lucia's power in saying, hell yeah, that's okay. There's room for more beautiful and important ritual and interpretation. Judaism is not done evolving. As we got close to the end of our conversation, Ana Lucia shared a heartbreaking and gorgeous reflection about how her experiences have impacted her outlook on death and dying. Have a listen. Uh, and I recognize that with peers, you know, the idea of someone's parent or close one, you know, about them dying passes or comes to mind and people, you know, not everyone reacts with calmness or, or positivity or even wants to contemplate it. A lot of people feel very uh, like this is not something that we want to talk about or, you know, we're sending the wrong vibe or, you know, we have to knock on wood for saying something like this. And when that happens, all I, all I can think about is I understand why people suffer, you know, why people suffer when it comes to uh, this moment in their lives when, when they are losing someone is because we haven't been socialized and used our, 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 our strongest tools, which are our communities, our families, our ritual, to, to think about, to plan, to dream up what it would be like to transition or to support the transition of those that we love. We don't, we forget the ceremony piece and, and that beautiful piece that we have a role, that we can have a role in, uh, in, in creating these spaces and, and these experiences. And it's something that I hold as such a gift that my parents gave me at a very young age and someone that, and something that has tremendously influenced the way I think of life, my own life and, and, and everyone else that's in relationship with me, you know, how our, our lives come to be in this particular incarnation of, um, of being. And then I had to ask, have you thought about your own death? Yes. Uh, I think about my, my end of my life often. In fact, I probably think about it every single day. And I think about it in my current, you know, state, like as a 35 year old, I think about it. Sometimes I imagine it as a very as a much older woman, uh, I don't know, you know, I think I'll probably only die once. And so like, I, I guess I'll figure it out in that moment, but I do know that I want that transition to be one that's peaceful and that's, that's accepted in a way that doesn't feel like, you know, we've, we've given up. Cause I feel like sometimes we still have these really like negative connotations. Like if someone decides to stop treatment on something, or if someone decides not to have a certain surgery, we kind of, we put these like fighter mode personas on people. Like they were a fighter. They fought till the very end, but you know what? Like someone doesn't need to fight to the very end in that way to have had a real desire to live or, and also a very clear uh, like acceptance of their passing. And so, and I think about that, like with my mom, like she probably would have done that other weird chemotherapy thing that would have extended her life by maybe like eight or 12 weeks. 
but I didn't need her to do that. You know, like I knew my mom was a fighter. I lived with her for 27 years. I remember every day how she got up and every day how she went to sleep. Like she was, she was someone that, you know, when we think about strength is not, can even be embodied in like one particular moment or cannot even be kind of described in one particular moment. So to think, to minimize my mom's like strength to the final months of her death is just so ridiculous and it's so silly. And, and that's another part of the conversation is that we need to also, uh, as a community, think about that end of life piece as not the defining moments of someone's, you know, entire existence. And that it's okay if someone chooses like that, I, that they want to pass, perhaps not the way you would have uh, chosen, because that's not on anyone, but the person who's, who's passing. And, and also, again, like, we have different approaches to end of life. And I just, I, I really value uh, comfort. I value like dying in my own home. I value dying with people that are closest to me. I value, you know, if I like having things that uh, I, I want my death to be multi-sensory and I want to feel as if the last thing that I do is something that brings me joy. All right, friends, I'm taking a breath, a big one, and I hope you join me. With all my gratitude to Ana Lucia for sharing so deeply. Do you or someone you know have a story to share? Or are there topics you'd want to hear me cover? Reach out to me, Sarit, through the website besideproject.org. There you will also find written posts, resources, and explorations of where Judaism meets death and dying. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon.